4: Do you like progress, technology, advancements and things? Sure you do, I do. Think about for a moment how much easier your life is today than the guy who even lived 50 years ago, right? I mean, if I wanted to right now, if I wanted to right here on camera, I could pick up my phone and order groceries and some guy would come deliver them right here to the studio. It's astounding, right? It's astounding. I get in my car to drive home. Not only am I able to talk to other people on the telephone, but. It actually hooks up to the speaker system in my car. and I just have a conversation as if they're sitting right there with me. You, we take these things for granted, but this is. This is normal now. Technology advancements are awesome, right? Mostly. There's a dark side to them, though. Because as the phones get better, the cars get better, and the groceries get delivered, weapons technology advances too. And this is probably going to get a little dark at times, but I do think it's important we understand the stakes. You see, if nation A gets mad at nation B in the year 1500, okay, people are going to die, get stabbed. Probably some horse charges in there, sweet swords and stuff like that. They'll work it out in the end. We're certainly not going to see a nation destroyed. Armies will die. Maybe some civilians will starve, but not the end of the world. That's the way war was for a long time. And then weapons technology began to advance and advance and advance. And then we got to something like World War I. And the world had never seen numbers like this. Now, most people don't know much about World War I. But remember, prior to that, it was all horses. That's really how wars were fought, on horseback. They tried charging people on horseback in World War I. Machine gun nests to just shoot all the people in all the horses, everyone dead. We started to see carnage like the world had never seen before. What, millions? Millions didn't die in wars before then. World War One, they did. The killing power of weapons is incredible. Artillery that can shoot you from miles and miles and miles away and wipe out all of you with one shot. Air power. And then came World War II. And all the weapons technology was already better, right? Better machine guns, better planes, better artillery. Now we got submarines out there. I know they had some in World War I, but submarines, battleships, aircraft carriers, amazing stuff. Except the killing power was more, too. And then, eventually, we developed nuclear weapons. And we used them. And I don't criticize the decision. It was the right decision to make. But let's do understand what happens when a nuclear bomb hits. It's not like we don't know. We've seen it. We have firsthand accounts. Shoot, we have pictures of before and after. There's even a little grainy video out there. What happens is they drop a bomb... It explodes over a civilian population and what follows is basically something that looks like the biblical apocalypse. We're talking everything melting. Can you imagine all around you the roads melting underneath you? So hot that people turn to ash immediately, like Thanos snapped them out of existence. We have some things left behind from people, and it's their ash shadow on the wall where they used to live. And that's just the initial shock of it. Honestly, this is gonna get a little graphic. I'm I'm gonna try to make it. It's always gonna be family friendly, but you understand that a nuclear bomb going off burns so hot that it sucks all the water out of the air. It basically flash boils all the water in the air. One of the stories you hear one of the most heartbreaking things you hear about the the wake of the hiroshima or nagasaki bombings is people were so thirsty because it sucked all the water out of your body too and all the water out of the air except they were so dehydrated if they actually did find water that wasn't full of dead bodies they would drink it but would drink too fast from full dehydration and die you see the old pictures and i know this is going to sound harsh but it's true Go thumb through some pictures if you have a strong stomach and you're not about to eat. Go thumb through some pictures of the victims of that. What's that look like to you? It's kids. We don't like to think about that. Who'd want to think about that? It's women and kids after faces melted off. If it sounds like I'm being graphic, it's because I am, because I want you to understand the stakes of the weaponry that exists today. And that was 1945. It's the year 2022. I think so many people out there now, they batter around things like war and no-fly zones and invade here and invade there, and they don't fully grasp that destruction can come here. We Americans are so spoiled. We've never really had that kind of an attack on our mainland. Geographically, we've been lucky. So we just don't think about that. I'm right here in Houston, Texas. It would not be at all difficult to drop a nuclear weapon right where I sit right now. What if those are my kids with their faces melted off? That's the reality of the war that could come. And we need to understand the stakes right now. The United States and Russia are, have tensions. There are 10,000 nuclear weapons between the two nations. And that's not even mentioning China. China is a nuclear power, a growing nuclear power, and they're out there threatening Taiwan every other second. We've declared that we're going to defend Taiwan. We're already getting involved against Russia. We're gonna defend Taiwan. Remember when Joe Biden pledged that we would?
5: I want to make China understand that we are not gonna step back, we are not gonna change any of our views. So are you saying
4: that that the United States would come to Taiwan's defense if China attacked?
5: Yes, we have a commitment.
4: Okay, that sounds nice, right? You're, You're rooting for the people of Taiwan, I am too. We're gonna come to their defense? We're going to send a carrier group over there? What can China do back? Oh, I'm glad you brought that up. Because they just got done testing a hypersonic missile that completely floored our intelligence community we're talking can't stop it can't see it in time more than easy to throw a nuclear warhead on the tip of that bad boy these are the stakes of the game and the guy currently in charge is such a doddering old fool people in his own party tried to take away his authority to launch nuclear weapons we are in tense times right now and the destructive power of the weapons out there is scary and people think to themselves what can't happen it won't happen cooler heads will prevail someone will step in someone will stop it i'm going to tell you two things one point to me a single time in human history We're a nation, tribe, whatever it is, empire, acquires a weapons technology and doesn't use it. Anyone? You got anything for me? You probably don't. That's one. Two. People talk a lot about, well, the Cuban Missile Crisis, we avoided that one. Do you understand how close we were to nuclear war? Let me explain something to you. Russian submarines... They're not built for warm weather. Don't worry, this is going to come into play here. They're not built for warm weather because Russia's freaking cold. Well, Russia sent down some submarines down there while the tensions were high. The Caribbean is really warm. And the water's warm and the air is warm. And a submarine, you got a bunch of dudes, well, women now too, but you got a bunch of dudes packed in a little tube underneath the water. No fresh air, no wind blowing. It's hot. It's hot really 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 hot and when you get hot you get irritable i know i personally do it's just human nature on one of these russian submarines they had nuclear tipped torpedoes on it now that's part of the story you know what a depth charge is you've probably seen it in the movies you'll see a ship looking for a submarine or trying to blow up a submarine and they'll start dropping these canisters off the side of the ship well here's the thing about a depth charge they're set to go off at a certain depth, and it's the name depth charge. It's actually not a big deal if a depth charge blows up above a submarine because the explosion itself always seeks the path of least resistance, so it always goes up. It's actually not the end of the world if a depth charge goes off beside a submarine. So the, the charge will go up. If it goes off underneath the submarine, everyone's dead. That said, if they're going off around you and you're in a steel tube under the water and you understand... All it takes is one. You don't have a submarine get wounded. One goes off, hurts that sub, everyone's dead. So you have a bunch of hot Russians in a submarine, stripped down to their underwear, as the story goes, and we are dropping depth charges trying to find them. They're hot, they're sweating, they're miserable, tensions are high, and these depth charges are rattling out the fillings from people's heads. The captain... The captain, the man in charge of the depth uh, of the submarine, ordered one of those nuclear-tipped torpedoes to be fired. Did you know that story? His name's Valentin Savitsky. I didn't always really screw that up. That was his name. Fire the nuclear weapon. Order was already given. We would have undoubtedly, as soon as that nuclear-tipped torpedo hit something, we would have responded in kind with nuclear weapons, nuclear war, like that. By the grace of God, his crew talked him out of it, convinced him he was just losing his mind. That's how close we came before. Right now we have a president who can't spell his own name and a deranged dictator in Russia and another one in China, all with nuclear weapons. I didn't mean for this to be as scary as it sounded, but I want you to understand, nuclear is something entirely different, something different than we've ever seen and it can come home. We have a great show for you tonight. We're gonna get smarter. Don't worry if if some of this stuff seems over your head. It's all over my head too. So let's find out, how do you deliver these things? What can Russia do? What can China do? Where are we going? All that's coming up tonight, and I'm right.
2: back to russia ukraine for two seconds in my mind right i'm always like hey could this thing ever lead to a nuclear fallout could this ever yeah. be nuclear war what is your take on on that is it just a scared u.s citizen right now yeah that's watching well, this We should be
6: scared because we have incompetent people heading up our country who frankly
0: got there through a fraudulent election
2: but regardless you of incompetent be- but in regardless of incompetent
4: people yeah. immediate threat how serious is the threat of nuclear warfare i think it's
5: serious i think it's serious
4: okay that's not exactly confidence inspiring joining me now major general jeff schlosser he's also the author of the book marathon war leadership in combat in afghanistan general obviously those are not inspiring words from former president trump there uh, Obviously, we know that there's a madman invading Ukraine, China has nukes, we have nukes. Do you think we'll see nuclear weapons blow up again in our lifetime?
5: Well, I certainly hope not. Uh, you know, I think that, no, you know, there are uh, a large number of people that are extremely focused on trying to prevent any kind of uh, confrontation directly between NATO, obviously, the United States uh, and Russia. And. Uh, it's not in Putin's uh, best interests to uh, try to actually go to a nuclear confrontation, really. Now, is he going to threaten it? Absolutely. I mean, remember, we're dealing with a uh, former spy, KGB spy, uh, worked his way up in the intelligence uh, apparatus. He's he's a master at deceit, disinformation. He's going to threaten a lot of different things. But I think that there are a lot of different leaders around the world that uh, they are trying to do the very best they possibly can to prevent a confrontation, even a conventional confrontation, that would lead anything like nuclear warfare.
4: General, before we get to us, actually, because I'm going to focus mostly on America here, but you just brought up Putin. Okay, let's say he, what if he's a madman at this point in time? I don't believe that, but what if he's a madman? Does Vladimir Putin within Russia have the authority to stroll into his office and press a button and start launching nukes? Or is there some kind of system even he has to go through before he can start them things flying?
5: You know, I mean, I think we don't really know exactly the system that uh, the Russians have morphed from since the Soviet Union. I think we've done an awful lot of study, and uh, we believe that there are safeguards. There are people besides uh, Putin that have to be able to approve any kind of a nuclear exchange. You know, all that said, though, uh, at the end of the day, it's been remarkable to watch Putin and uh, see how isolated he is. And on the opposite end of that isolation is, is that he's probably done an awful lot to try to make sure that he controls the elements of power within Russia. Uh, I, I know I'm giving you this kind of back-and-forth answer. Uh, the truth is, I don't frankly know. I'm not sure anybody in America exactly knows, and that's why we have to be very careful about dealing with Putin.
4: General, let's focus on America then. What are our nuclear capabilities? I'm obviously going over a lot on the show tonight. I have someone coming on talking about Russia's and China's. We don't really talk about ours. How many do we have? How many ways do we have to deploy them? What's our stockpile like?
5: Yeah, so we we maintain a nuclear triad, so that means threes. And so what you end up seeing is, is that we have uh, <coughs> strategic ballistic, intercontinental ballistic missiles. Uh, they essentially are on alert all the time. So when Putin said that uh, he had elevated uh, his strategic nuclear forces, ours are like that all the time. They are ready to respond at all times. Uh, But over and above that, and you're gonna see that those numbers are in the thousands, Um, not in the two thousands, but generally in the thousands. Uh, uh, You're also going to see two other elements that uh, basically work uh, with each other. One is a submarine force that can be forward-based quite close uh, to our, whoever our competitors are, whoever threatens us. Uh, and they're at sea at all times. There are, there are cap- nuclear capabilities, you know, fired from missiles under the water uh, at all times. And then finally, you have our, our bomber force with strate- strategic bombing, uh, strategic nuclear weapons. Uh, so it's a triad. And uh, is it possible to try to defeat one portion of that? Maybe even two? Yeah, absolutely, if you attack America um but uh, the whole concept of mutually assured destruction that we've had with uh, us and our competitors over the last 50 to 60 years uh has been based upon this other element that even if you try to destroy our land-based systems or our air-based systems uh you know the submarine-based ones will catch you and uh, destroy your country as well i know this sounds crazy it's right out of dr strangelove for most americans they probably think i'm an idiot Talking about uh, this kind of uh, level of warfare where you're basically destroying much of the Earth and most of the population, but uh, what that this mutually assured destruction between us and uh, and the former Soviet Union, now the Russians, and then also the Chinese, has been able to maintain a level of peace around the world no one's been crazy enough to try to violate it we've gotten some pretty close uh, the cuban missile crisis was closer than i think most folks wanted you know to do or to talk about that's been a very long time most of our listeners and viewers were not alive during that time frame i was a kid you
4: know general I, i'm going to nerd out on a couple details here just because i don't know and i think other people don't know you mentioned icbms uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles what are our capabilities there? Can we fire one from America and land it anywhere in the world? What what kind of range are we talking about on these things, and what kind of accuracy?
5: Yeah, so I mean, both uh, you're nailing it right in the head, and I'll say both of those, uh, your latter two questions, range and accuracy, are are classified. If I give exact numbers, so let me just say this. Okay. Uh, you know, they are located inside the United States. Uh, it's not really that much of a secret in the States that they are actually are located in in silos. They're on alert all the time. There are people there ready to go 24-7, and they do rehearsals all the time. And they can hit anywhere that our foes are inside the, the globe um, and do it in a very significant way. Let me just say the numbers are very, very high. And, uh, and you know, they are... Uh, uh, multiple capabilities within each missile. Let's just uh, leave it at that. So the range issue, the ability to do this, reach out and strike our enemies is absolutely there. And uh, as I've said, you know, for 70 years, this has been a major deterrent against anybody uh, out there.
4: Okay, and finally the submarines, and I understand there there's gonna be all kinds of classified stuff here too, so I understand. You know what you can divulge and what you can't, but you mentioned these things are always at sea. Doesn't our enemy know where our submarines are or wouldn't he if they approached land somewhere?
5: So we have a number of different submarines at sea, actually submarines that uh, you know, seek out and are ready to attack uh, um, you know, uh, surface vessels and other different types of uh, missions of that nature. Some that actually do some sub- special operations in some cases. And then you have the large submarines that are meant uh, to be uh, always at sea uh, in, in a posture that they could, at almost no notice, very, very quickly uh, respond to a nuclear attack on our country. Um, so let me just say that they are always prepositioned in places that you might m- think make sense. Sometimes you're going to hear about our submarines or others wandering around getting close to uh, a, you know, either a competitor's continent or something like that. Those are probably not the ones that we're referring to. The ones that we were referring to are going to be in an area where they have uh, a quick flight Uh, But it doesn't necessarily need to be direct. uh, You know, as you know, um, these are going to go essentially into space and then come back on down. Um, Let me just say that uh, they're postured and they're ready and they have been ready for decades uh, to uh, be that final deterrent uh, for our country. Gosh, that is cool. All right. Finally, our defense system. What kind of
4: defense do we have if Russia, China starts lobbing them this way? I understand we're gonna start lobbing them back the other way, but what can we do to stop theirs?
5: Yeah, so there's been an awful lot of, and this is mainly political. I mean, you know, the decisions about not to, uh, you know, uh, have uh, certain capabilities out there uh, that are very well known. Let me just say that there are defense mechanisms and obviously there are other, right now, they are basically other missiles that uh, shoot others out uh you know the defense system starts off at the sense sensing and uh, in other words uh almost think of it as an early warning indications that there's going to be uh you know some sort of either fueling or movement uh, inside uh, our foes our potential foes um missile systems and many of them are mobile um you know including the russians uh but these are being watched 24 7. so we have a good indication then the sensing of an actual launch and you can actually figure that out Uh, During that time frame, you've essentially got three different opportunities to uh, try to kill that uh, intercontinental missile coming our way or swarm of them. Uh, You know, it's uh, during that initial launch period as they're actually uh, uh, going up into what I call space. Then you have that other area, you know, that is a high altitude trajectory, and then you have it as it's coming down. That's obviously the least best choice. Um, You know, you don't want to do that when it's crossed into the United States. There are systems out there. I'm not going to get into them uh, that have a variety of different ways to do just what I've talked about.
4: How about that? General, thank you so much for making us smarter. I appreciate you.
5: Yeah, thanks for having me on the show. I
4: really appreciate it. All right, that's us. What about Russia? What can they do? We'll find out next.
6: Can you reassure the world that Russia would not fire a nuclear weapon in anger, would not
4: fire a first strike? We don't have insane people. We have our military doctrine. Well, that's not a no. Joining me now is someone who would know, Brent Sadler, he's a Navy veteran, a nuclear engineer and the Senior Fellow for Naval Warfare and Advanced Technology at the Heritage Foundation. So basically, he knows what he's talking about. All right, Brent, before we get to what they can do or what they can't do and what we can and can't do, what's your opinion on what they would do? I mean, it's easy to think of Vladimir
7: Putin as some deranged maniac. Is he? Well, no, I don't think uh, Putin or any of his close uh, advisors are certainly not crazy. They're all very calculating. Uh, it's just maybe how they go about their calculus may seem very shocking to ours, and certainly the value of human life is low on that on that calculus. Uh, that being said, focusing in on their capabilities is a safe place to go because capabilities beget options, and those options are what people like Putin weigh and the reactions to those choices that they have before them. And so we can talk more at length about that, but there are several that are quite stark and. uh doesn't necessarily mean they have it off the table of, of a nuclear weapons use.
4: Okay, Brent, the, the average person, there's just the average Joe going to work, sporting a family, when he thinks about Russia and nuclear weapons, he thinks about the hunt for Red October or something like that, that it's always some submarine can hit any city in the world with a with the press of a button. If someone turns that key, it's on. But what's the reality? It's 2022 what is russia's capability to deploy nuclear weapons and what kind of nuclear weapons do they have
7: so they have an array so from very small they call them tactical field weapons and these are where the the highest danger of miscalculation like the pictures like you're seeing right now shooting something out of an artillery piece or even a nuclear mortar round so these are low yield tactical use the the authority of that can be delegated down very low to field great officers even. Uh, this was a fear and a very real one we found out later in the Cuban Missile Crisis. To medium and longer range ballistic missiles, uh, think of like what the Iranians and North Koreans have on their scuds, they could launch against Western Europe. Then of course the city killers, these are the thermonuclear bombs that, that have intercontinental ballistic missiles to carry them, uh, deployed on uh, rockets as well as on submarines. And of course, there are long range strategic bombers, which they could fly and cruise, cruise missiles tipped with a nuclear weapon on the end of them. That uh, won't come necessarily if it goes nuclear, it won't start that way. Most likely, it might be a strategic loss in Ukraine that triggers a tactical nuclear use, which then rapidly escalates.
4: Okay. How's that? Play that out. Continue with that in mm. your mind, please. What are you talking about? A loss
7: in Ukraine, yeah. tactical nuclear? What do you mean? So, I mean, it's interesting that Lavrov says they don't have crazy people, but we follow the doctrine. Well, the doctrine, quite frankly, to, to a Western mind is crazy. And what I mean by that is, if the battle that they chose to, to wage in Ukraine starts to go poorly, and it looks like the Russian people and the Russian military don't have the stomach for it, and they start to turn on the regime, this is Putin particularly, then that, he'll start to calculate that as a strategic loss. And that strategic loss equates to a strategic weapons use that might flip the table on him from a tactical defeat. So if he's losing in Ukraine, his military is getting pushed back and they're losing the morale, he may resort to use of a tactical nuke to basically shock as well as to overwhelm the uh, the resistance that's in Ukraine and that he can basically pull out a victory at the last. The problem with that thinking oh. is, yeah, go ahead.
4: No, 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 I, okay, it's just sorry to interrupt but. Yeah. Again, the average citizen thinks that we have satellites in the sky with a tracker on every nuclear weapon out there and we know where they all are. What's the case with the tactical nuclear weapon? How tactical are we talking about here? Are we talking a backpack, a truck? What's it look
7: like? And do we know where they are? Well, it certainly it wouldn't be a backpack. In the height of the Cold War, they had these things called suitcase bombs, which were more than just a suitcase in the reality. Uh, being, I guess your real question is, can we track them? Do we know where they are on a minute-to-minute or hour-to-hour basis? And the answer, sadly, is no. So we don't know where all those are. Uh, and once they get into a com- combat zone or deployed near a combat zone, it's even harder to track.
4: Okay. Now, where would he deploy one that would change things around? I guess that's always a question I've wondered. Of Yeah, okay, I understand you can nuke a city. I, I, I get that. But how does deploying one, especially one of the smaller tactical ones, how does it change the equation for someone like Putin at all?
7: Yes. Yeah, so if he thinks that the resistance in Kyiv, for example, the capital, and he knows that the uh, presence of Zelensky is there, but he can't break through the res- the, the forces around Kyiv and it starts to turn into a strategic loss for him, maybe deploying a tactical nuke. And again, this is just my, you know, is speculation that if the Ukrainian forces are are focused in on certain avenues of attack or approaches makes a tactical nuke a possible military use. You basically take out a whole division or a large dug-in forces uh, on the approaches to Kyiv. And that actually might open up some military options to them that they didn't have before. Again, they're thinking about these tactical nuclear weapons as just like another artillery piece, not a nuclear weapon like we in the West would view.
4: Okay. Now let's go beyond the tactical one. Can Vladimir Putin
7: nuke New York City, and can we stop it if he wants to? So the answer to that uh, it, it it depends. If it's a single launch, maybe it can be uh, targeted and defended against. Uh, our missile defense systems have been developed and designed, and the sensors placed really against a rogue regime like North Korea or Iran, not a massive attack from China or Russia. So for an intercontinental ballistic missile launch, we would probably have some warning about it from the sensors, from satellite that you mentioned earlier, but the ability to take it out, that's that—that's a big question mark. There's not a good answer for that one, sadly.
4: Okay,
7: Ukraine, Ukraine had nuclear weapons, didn't they? What happened to them? Ah, so this is part of the genesis of where we are today. So, 94-95 frame, Ukraine inherits, uh, you know, I think it's well over a thousand warheads. And the West and the Russian Republic uh, came to a deal that w- we would all acknowledge and honor the boundaries of Ukraine as they existed then, which included Crimea and of course all of the Donbass. Uh, In return, Ukraine would give up all its nuclear weapons back to the Russians, the successor state to the Soviet Union. Uh, In return, the United States had one less nuclear power that it had to worry about in its calculation. The problem is the Russian people, more specifically Putin himself, never really wanted to acknowledge the Donbass or Crimea as part of Ukraine. And There's a deep and interesting history that goes back specifically on 1954 when uh, Khrushchev, some will say on a drunken night of binge drinking, offered to give and gave the Donbass and Crimea to the Soviet Republic of Ukraine. So the borders that we see today actually date back to 1954, that evening. And and for a short while after the fall of the Soviet Union, Crimea even was its own independent republic, separate from from Ukraine. But all part of the deal to get rid of the nuclear weapons was an acknowledgement that all parties would honor the boundaries that are Ukraine today. Sadly, the Russians never really, despite they signing a piece of paper, never really honored it.
4: Hold, hold on, Brett. We're not just going to skip over this part. Khrushchev got yeah. blasted and handed away part of his own country. What?
7: Please give me the story. So, so the insight so, the, the, the official story is that uh, the, because of the sacrifice of the Ukrainian people during the, the Great Patriotic War, what we call World War II, that they were given the Donbass, the Luhansk and Donetsk regions, as well as Crimea. And it was it wasn't really something that anyone really cared or paid much attention to in the Soviet Union because they were all Soviet citizens. Uh, fast forward, and again the, the story the story that's come out later is that Khrushchev was on a night of drinking, and having you know Ukrainian background, and decided that he would uh, give in and give uh, those those areas over to the Ukrainian people, and that eventually became formalized. Uh, so that's oh, the gosh. the inside story. Is it was a, a long night of drinking. <laughs>
4: Oh, those Russians. Brent, thank you so much, brother. I appreciate you. All right. Thank you for having me on. Joining us next, Stephen Yates. What can China do? Hang on. Well, I don't know if you've heard. China's pretty big. Big economy, a lot of people, big military, and nuclear weapons as well. What do they have? What don't they have? I don't know. I'm not smart enough, but Stephen Yates is. Stephen Yates joins us now. He's the chair of the China Policy Initiative at the America First policy institute all right Stephen we're all learning a lot of things about nuclear and nuclear capabilities because I'm an idiot and I don't know anything about it <laughs> tell me is China over before you get specifics we are going to get specifics but overall is China this huge nuclear power are they kind of okay what, what's China like
6: no China has a substantial nuclear power Uh, They had for decades, uh, way back during the Cold War, maintained what they called a minimal nuclear deterrent. So they definitely had achieved nuclear weapons capabilities and they had the ability to deliver some uh, if they needed to retaliate was the rationale at the time. But in recent decades, they have deliberately accelerated that program uh, and they have minimum hundreds if not thousands of deliverable nuclear weapons at this point.
4: Okay, well, that doesn't sound good, Stephen. All right, uh, first of all, let's rewind a little bit. China, I mean, everyone knows Mao took over, 49, obviously because he's a communist scumbag, had a bunch of economic problems and whatnot. How did China end up with a nuclear
6: weapon at all? Well, it is one of the great mysteries of the world how some of the most decrepit regimes seem to find a way to be able to develop the world's worst weapons. I mean, after all, the North Koreans have nuclear weapons capability at this point. Uh, Pakistan got to this level of technology also, probably in both cases with the help of the Chinese. Uh, And so it turns out it isn't in 2022 high tech to be able to develop a weapons of mass destruction. It was back in the 30s and 40s.
4: Okay, Stephen, can you explain, and I know this is dumb and way below your skis, but I'm dumb and I need someone to explain it to me. How does one go from nuclear energy to a nuclear weapon? I know that's been a big problem with Iran for a long time. They want, hey, we just want the power from it, and then it looks like they're trying to make a weapon from it. Can't you just make a weapon from the reactor thingy?
6: Yeah, well, I'm also not a nuclear engineer, and I, I don't, as Homeland Security should know, I don't make these things at home in my spare time, <laughs> uh, but they, but it would be cool if I could. Uh, yeah, but uh, I think that uh, basically the, the science of it is that you end up with fissile material as a product of generation of nuclear energy, and that can be further enriched Uh, through certain processes, when people start talking about centrifuges, there's a time in the Iran nuclear deals when people are talking about, well, they have X number of centrifuges that could spin at these speeds, and that takes the uranium from this level to that level. And I'm, I'm just speaking at a level that I understand that most other people can understand that they're basically taking the byproduct of nuclear energy development, enriching it and changing it in a way that allows it to be weaponized to generate a weapon of mass destruction. But there's two parts of this. One is making the actual explosion the other is developing something that can deliver that weapon in the right time or place, whether it's you know, missile, uh, torpedo by sea, uh, whether it's something that's dropped from a plane like was done in World War II, uh, or uh, the unfortunate variants of these that could be dirty bombs uh, that are just laid into a populous area and go boom because a terrorist makes it happen, uh, or as they now refer to as tactical nuclear weapons. So you don't end up with the mushroom cloud effect. You end up with a terrible nuclear explosion, but in a more confined space. So those, that's the kind of devil's menu going to a Chinese restaurant and, and, and ordering up your nuclear weapons.
4: All right, Stephen, you just brought up a dirty bomb, and people hear that term a lot. They're worried about a dirty bomb, a dirty bomb. What's that mean?
6: Well, usually what it means is something that is not kind of the, the fully engineered military quality kind of device uh, where you have a lot of science and engineering that goes into it. So you have a high degree of reliability that you can keep it safe when you are storing it, you presumably don't want to blow yourself up, and to be able to deliver it reliably to a target, and that's what professional militaries and responsible governments would do. A dirty bomb is something that could uh, deliver a chemical, biological, or even maybe not a fully formed nuclear device uh, that, it, you know, is that being damaging is good enough. And so it's not something that's put on the head of a multi-million-dollar uh, Trident missile, or it's something that basically just goes boom in a community.
4: Steven, you brought up the delivery system, and we're all learning a lot about that. And torpedoes, and like you said, someone you know has one in a backpack, basically. Or I remember a headline recently about China testing a hypersonic missile and I can't help but put two and two together and think nuclear China, hypersonic missile, that doesn't sound good. Am I overthinking this? Can they put a nuclear warhead on that bad boy?
6: Well, I think that the science is is very, very clear that they could. Uh, And China has made enormous strides in its missile capabilities. Uh, And it's one of the harder things to defend against. We have reached the sort of miracle stage of being able to do what we were told for a generation was impossible to have some degree of missile defense. Uh, But what that did was provoke the Chinese and others who could afford to do it. And they have enough prisoner engineers that they put into their system to keep churning and churning more uh, capable missiles, able to go farther with a greater degree of accuracy and are harder to detect. Uh, so, yes, being hypersonic is a big deal uh, and why would you want to be able to do that but to be able to deliver this and the only real debate is is it for deterrence to scare people off so that you have to compromise in advance with their wishes or because you actually aim to deliver this kind of death to a target sometime in the future.
4: Okay, Stephen, can you, and, and, and you may not know, that's fine, but can you help me understand, all right, China, they have a missile, whether it's hypersonic or not, and they slapped a big old fat nuclear warhead to the tip of it, what do they have the ability to do like right now? If China woke up this morning, Xi Jinping wakes up and he's got murder on his mind, can he walk down and press a button and blow up Houston in 20 minutes? That's where I'm sitting right now. What do what, yeah. what, what the capabilities look like? What can they target? Can they land one of these things in a tomato can from a thousand miles away? What are the capabilities?
6: Well, first, just to help you sleep at night, they don't have to do that. The the Port of Houston has a ton of container traffic that comes and goes through that area. And the first best way for low tech bad guys to be able to do horrible things is to get things in by more conventional means than having to send it up to space or send it at crazy fast speed to defeat our detection. Uh, so the you know when people talk about dirty bombs or even planned explosions, this is the number one threat that we face, and I, we've we've been dealing with this for some time. But the, I, I don't think the average American has any comps, concept whatsoever of the amount of container traffic that comes in and out of the United States sits in our ports and then makes its way through our country. That's the number one threat in my view. Missiles come second to that, but they can also bring a submarine all the way up near our shores and something goes up and most of our missile defense systems are not going to catch it in that immediate launch phase. We needed to sort of catch flight and that's where we can meet it and try to take a bullet out with a bullet. Uh, and so they have nuclear-capable submarines that can be more quiet than diesel submarines, go greater distances. They could come up within a short distance of our shores, possibly undetected, and, uh, and launch from there if, they, if we just wanted to be scared even more.
4: Okay. Well, that, that was a little dark, but thank you for that. And by the way, I do <laughs> want to echo what Stephen just said. I happen to live in a port area. I've been to uh, several different ports. If you haven't, Go down to one, if if not just to see how huge the operation is of how giant these ships are, loading and offloading, and how easy it really would be to get something in there. But you did bring one thing up. Last question for you, Stephen. They could get a submarine up here. Now, history buffs will know... You can see Nazi submarines blowing things up off our off our Atlantic coast in World War II. But I think the average American probably thinks, well, no, the the Navy has radar and stuff, and they, they could never get here. Could they get here?
6: Well, we do have excellent technology. We should be investing more in what our naval capabilities are, uh, all of these kinds of things, because I think, frankly, a lot of our establishment policymakers have undervalued the will and the nature of the threats we face, and I think Putin is just the latest wake-up call, and that China is no less. Uh, But there there are all kinds of stealth technologies that we were ahead of the curve on, uh, and Chinese engineers of their own, but also clever ones that steal technology by, uh, I think, a little bit loosey-goosey controls on our part or our allies' parts. China's submarine capabilities and stealth capabilities have improved a significant degree. I think they can get close enough for a missile to be a real problem for us.
4: Stephen Yates, that was beyond outstanding. I wish I could have you for another hour, but I know you're a busy man. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jesse. My pleasure. I was dynamite. I'm so much smarter now. I'm going to act like I came up with all that myself. All right. We have final thoughts next. I hope we don't get blown up. But if I can make you feel better about something as we wrap up the show here, if we die in a nuclear bomb, one, that's kind of a cool way to die. Two, it's got to be pretty fast, right? I mean, going to a million degrees in an instant doesn't sound that bad. No, look, pray, hope. think we'll be all right. At least, look, at least we're in one of the countries that has them, incentivizing other people not. All right, we'll do it again.